Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. The next day, as they were on their journey and coming near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became hungry and desired something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heaven open, and something descending like a great sheet led down by four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, No, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We were created with a natural curiosity. A desire to learn all that we can about the world in which we live. It is that pursuit of discovery that makes life an adventure. Opening our hearts and minds prepares us for the journey. Living to learn, learning to live. Gabby Barkey was an internationally known archaeologist, tended to work mainly in Israel. And back in 1979, he was working in the Valley of Hinnon, right outside of Jerusalem, a place where it was well-known burial sites. But he wanted to go out there and continue doing some excavation. But more than that, he also wanted to help inspire children. Just like us, having a passion for our third graders, He wanted to pass on the love of archaeology to other students there in in Jerusalem. And so that day he was working with kids who were 12, 13 years old. And they came out. They they wanted to get their hands dirty. They wanted to experience this. And so he was going to let them. And so he got out there to start kind of teaching them, here's what you need to do and here's how we do this and why we do that. He's walking them through all of this. But there's this one kid, Nathan. Every time he'd say, but sir, can, what about, what, what, what about that? What, can, we, can we do this over here? I mean, he was Mr. Enthusiasm. And he kept interrupting Gabby, and it was just driving him crazy. But finally he got through sharing everything he needed to share. And he was going to place these students around in different areas to work. And it occurred to him that maybe Nathan needed to work way over there. <laughs> and so he took him over to the spot where Nathan could work and you know, there were some low walls and had this floor, and you could see how this was a certain room. And he said, what I want you to do is I want you to sweep this floor. I want you to make it as clean as your mother's kitchen floor. He figured that ought to keep him busy for a while. He said, we'll come back, we're going to take some pictures. He then went back over to the other students, began to place them around so that they could also begin doing some work. He had no more been gone 15 minutes from... Nathan, when he felt this pull on the back of his shirt. He turned around and there was Nathan 
and he was holding this vase of antiquity. And when Gabby saw it, I mean, he about had a heart attack. Where did you find that? Well, over there in that hole. What hole? Well, Nathan led him back over to where he had been working. Then it turned out that Nathan wasn't satisfied just to sweep. He wanted to remodel. <laughs> Unbeknownst to Gabby, he had brought a hammer along with him. And he wanted to dig. And so he started digging in the floor and hammering. And he knocked a hole in the floor, exposing a room below it. Now, if there's a room below a floor, then it means it really isn't a floor. It must have been a roof. And what they finally determined after lots of study is there must have been an earthquake a long time ago and the roof fell down and sealed up this room. And down below there were skeletal remains and there was all this pottery there was more than a thousand pieces of incredible history that had just been discovered. None of it was more significant than these two little silver scrolls. They were about the size of a cigarette. And it turned out that when they got them out, you couldn't hardly get them open. I mean, it took them three years to figure out how to try to unroll these scrolls without destroying them. They finally were using some epoxy glue and dentist tools and slowly but surely piecing it back more and more. And finally, when they rolled them back, the first word that Gabby saw was Yahweh, the God of Israel. And when they finally got them completely open, what it said was, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a benediction from the book of Numbers, the 6th chapter, 24th verse. It turned out that these scrolls were dated to be about 2,600 years old. It is the oldest writing we have of Scripture on record. It is an incredible find, one of the top 10 archaeological finds in the 20th century. And it's all because when the grave robbers had come, they saw floor. And when Gabby came, he saw floor. And when a 12-year-old boy came, he saw an opportunity to dig a hole. And he made a discovery. How often the opportunity to discover incredible new things is right before us and we just don't see. It's what happened to Peter in our scripture lesson this morning. He was about to see things in a new way and make an incredible discovery. You see, Peter had grown up in a society that basically said, God loves the Jews, his chosen people, and he hates Gentiles. That's what they had always been taught. 
You worship with Jews. You can eat with Jews. You do not associate with Gentiles. God does not care about Gentiles. If you see a woman in childbirth who is a Gentile, do not help her. It just brings another Gentile into the world. God loves His chosen people. And so that's what Peter had grown up believing. Which, again, you can understand how often that happens in religion. Whatever religion we're a part of, we believe that's the one that God loves and doesn't love those who are outside our circle. That's what the Jews felt about Gentiles. That's what Christians have felt about Jews and Muslims. That's what some Muslims will say about the infidel. But that's really not what Moses or Jesus or Mohammed had to say. But we sometimes in religion wind up saying God loves us and those who look and act like us, but not anybody else. That's what Peter believed. God loves the Jews, but he hates the Gentiles. But Peter was about to see something in a new way, discover something. He was prepared for this because he was staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. That's important. You read right past it when you go read this whole story. Simon the Tanner. A tanner was someone who worked with the skins of dead animals. And if you did that, it says by Jewish law, you were unclean. You were unrighteous. But Simon the Tanner was a good Jew who wanted to worship Yahweh, but felt unworthy and unacceptable. And yet Peter was staying with him. Now you don't stay with people who are unrighteous, unclean. Peter was staying with Simon the Tanner. So the day came, Peter goes up onto the rooftop about noon, and there he is praying, and he has a vision. And it's the sheet coming down from heaven with all these animals who are unclean on it. And he hears a voice that says, rise up, kill, eat. Peter says, I would never do that. I have never eaten anything unclean. And the voice says, do not call unclean that which God has made clean. And it went back into heaven. The vision happens a second time, just the same way. And then it happens a third time, same way. And it says, Peter was now left on the rooftop pondering, what does this mean? It's obvious God had given it to him three times because he didn't want him to miss it. Do you understand what's happening here, Peter? He's there thinking, praying, and there's a knock at the door. Three soldiers are there, and they said, Our master, Cornelius, wants you to come see him. He's a good man. He was a God-fearer. Now, he was a Roman centurion. That <clears throat> tells you a lot. A Roman centurion, you're a Gentile. A God-fearer means that you want to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, but you don't follow all the laws of Judaism. But they said he's a good man. He prays all the time. He gives liberally. He cares about the poor. And Peter has to make a decision. And he decides to go. To go see a Gentile. To go see someone that you're supposed to hate. You don't associate with. And so he goes, and when Cornelius here, he's drawing near, he comes out of the house in order to see Peter because he knows that no good Jew would definitely come into a Gentile's house. And when Peter sees Cornelius, 
he says, let's go inside. And he goes inside and sits down and begins to eat with Cornelius. This is a hinge moment in history. Because now you're going to have this new Christian church say, God loves the Jews, his chosen people, but he also loves the Gentiles. And that was a radical new concept, that God can love the Gentiles and not just his chosen people. For Peter, he was having to rethink some of his most basic opinions, attitudes, beliefs, and he was doing something for the first time, to sit down and to eat with Cornelius. Now we shouldn't be surprised at that because ever since Jesus said to Peter, come, follow me, it had been a lifetime of having to rethink the things he had learned as a child and he believed as an adult. Peter was living to learn and he was learning to live. This morning, I want to conclude this sermon series, Living to Learn, Learning to Live. We said we're going to have this sermon series in order to remind us all that we are all called to a lifelong learning opportunity. That all of our lives, we're supposed to be growing, examining our beliefs, examining our attitudes towards others, examining our beliefs about ourselves. What are our limitations? What can we do? What can we not do? Are we willing to rethink things about ourselves? Are we willing to rethink things about others? Are you willing to do something for the first time? So that's what we've been trying to do through this series. Because you and I know <clears throat> that as we've gone through life, sometimes we get very comfortable with the old that we do, that we believe, the way that we act. And yet maybe, maybe it's time to stop as Peter had to and say, what does God really think about these people who are different from me? And maybe it's time for us to rethink our attitudes towards people who may be of another race, color of skin, the role of women, leadership, people of a different faith, Jews, Muslims, people of a different sexual orientation, people of a different political party. Are we able to stop and to rethink our attitudes? Can we rethink ourselves? What do we feel we are called to do and opportunities to be? If you've been here long, you know that one of my favorite sayings is, when is the last time you did something for the first time? Because if we're not still doing things for the first time, if we're not rethinking the beliefs we had as children and young adults, then we're not still growing and we are called to be lifetime learners. So as we come to the end today, I want to remember how Jesus is calling Peter to be growing. And it's what he asks out of us too. There's two things that I want to say. First of all, I think one of the reasons you and I hesitate to rethink or to do new things is because of the past. Because of the past. 
we have gotten comfortable with the things that we think. We've gotten comfortable with the things that we do. And we're not wanting to go through the struggles of thinking in new ways, doing new things. And so if we're not careful, you just keep everything the way that it was. It's the past. And you know if you're there, by if you find yourself saying on a regular basis, I've never done that before. I've never done it that way before. And if that's what you're saying, that tells you you're living with that block of the past. You know, one of the things that I have loved about the St. Luke's family of faith, when I came in 1991, downtown Oklahoma City was not a place of incredible excitement and activity. In 1991, we were just about dead. We had yet to have the bombing. We had yet to pass maps. Two things that had such a significant impact that helped to lead us into being such a vibrant city that we are today. And so many churches, St. Luke's one of them, we had struggled. And we were trying to find ways to, to reinvigorate our church, new ways that we could do things within our church, believing you still have a calling where we are. And when I came in 1991, it was just six months later, we got the opportunity. What would you think about going to Russia? The idea of going to Russia. I had been raised with, they are the evil empire. They are the enemy. They were the people you were afraid of. Could we rethink our attitude towards people of Russia? And so 40 of us went, and now hundreds of us have gone through these years and I can tell you how it has changed so many of our lives and actually how it helped to change our church as we begin to rethink how we look towards people who are supposed to be our enemies. Well, we decided, why don't we go on television? Never done that before. Maybe we could get the message out by going on television. We decided, well, maybe we need to start a contemporary worship service. We have two traditional worship services. What if we started a contemporary worship service, Lifelight? Never done that before. We thought, maybe we need to start Wednesday Night Alive, a midweek program, not just Sunday school on Sunday morning, but come together in the middle of the week, have a meal, have fellowship, go learn, grow in our faith. Never done that before. Maybe we ought to have a a radio spot so during the week we're putting out a message to anyone in the city with something positive, something to think about. Maybe we ought to start a new campus, find another place to share the gospel here, one church, multiple campuses. Maybe we ought to get all of our worship services, put them all online, five different services going out across the airways and our, our online experience. Maybe we ought to start a new food ministry, doubling down on our Meals on Wheels and creating a new program of our uh, kitchen, our community kitchen. You know, I look back at all the ideas that have come out of this family of faith, and I just got to tell you, in 31 years, I've never had the leaders of this church say to me, Bob, we've never done it that way before. This has been a church family has been willing to be open and dream, to be willing to think about new ways, to let God lead us into things that we've never done before. Are you willing to be thinking? 
got to tell you, this 20 years ago, 2002, I had an incredible opportunity. The Lilly Foundation called, and they said, we're going to get together Protestants and Catholics. We don't believe Protestants and Catholics talk very often. We believe there's some successful Catholic churches, there's some successful Protestant churches, but you don't get together and really talk. And I thought about that, and I thought, he's right. We are always trying to look around and have education. What can we learn from other successful churches? And it's usually other Methodist churches. If we want to think outside the box, we ask, well, what is some successful Baptist church doing? Or the Presbyterian, or the Lutheran, or somebody else? No, we tend to just look more close to home. But I thought, I never ask, what is the Catholic church doing? So they called and said, Bob would like you to be a presenter and to come. They were going to have one in San Antonio, Indianapolis, and Boston. I was asked to come to Boston to be with a Catholic priest and be able to make presentations. What are we doing to reinvigorate a downtown church? And where is the Methodist church going? And what are the changes you're going through? And so I said I would go. Had a ball. I learned so much about the Catholic church at that time. What I learned was right off the bat that the Boston Archdiocese um, winds up having um, two million Catholics. Two million Catholics right there in Boston. Now think about it. The state of Oklahoma has about four million people. If we're like Boston, half of the people in Oklahoma would be Catholic. I mean, that's a lot of people just in Boston who are Catholic. And they loved to laugh and tease. They said, you know, we are the number one and number two denominations in America. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, there's 60 million Catholics. That makes us number one. And there's 30 million inactive Catholics. That makes us number two. <laughs> I mean, they loved to laugh. We had a great time teasing. And, and I really did learn so much. Father Walter Kuman. I was paired to teach with him. Father Walter was someone who helped to found Voice of the Faithful. It says it's keep the faith, change the church. And this was an organization, a group of Catholics who wanted to talk to the Vatican about rethinking some of their fundamental beliefs. The Voice of the Faithful, they wanted to talk to the Vatican and say, we believe women should be ordained priests. We believe priests should be able to get married. We want to question the stance of the Catholic Church on birth control. Now they had a list of things that they were wanting to deal with and changes they wanted to see happen. And so we were discussing all these things. Well, the whole idea is we'd make a presentation. There were people who came, just anyone could come and they could ask questions. And so when we came to our last night, I mean, Father Walter was a great draw. And our last night, it was packed, standing room only. And I knew people had lots of questions for Father Walter. But we, I made my presentation, what was going on in the Methodist Church in downtown, and he was making his. And so then we did discuss different things. We both were answering lots of questions. But I will never forget, there was then this woman, after we talked about all the changes happening in churches, she stood up and she said, I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid I'm losing the church that I love so much with all the changes. I mean, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? 
I looked over at Falder Walter and I thought, she's Catholic, you can answer that question, not me. And so I kind of raised my eyebrows looking at him. He kind of smiled. He looked back to her and very compassionately he said, we must not be trapped by the past. We must trust God and we must trust each other. And together we will try and God will lead us into an exciting future. That was worth the trip. I've never forgotten it. We must not be trapped by the past. We must trust God. We must trust each other. And together we will try, and God will lead us into an exciting future. That's what was happening to Peter. Trust God. That God doesn't just love the Jews, His chosen people, but He loves the Gentiles too. I'm going to ask you, Peter, to go and do something you've never done before, to go sit down and eat with Cornelius, a Gentile. And it would change the church and the history of the world. Are you willing to pray and to think and to listen? Second, I think so often, I, I love this part of the story where it says Peter is on the rooftop and he is praying, he is listening, he is thinking, and then there's a knock at the door. I can tell you that's what I believe happens. If you will pray and you are thinking and you are listening, there will be a knock at the door. An opportunity to rethink your limitations, to rethink where God is calling you, to rethink your attitudes towards something, to be willing to go do something for the first time. If you think and you pray and you listen, there will be a knock at the door. And for Peter, he decided to go. He decided to go. And when you seize the opportunity that is before you, it will change your life and lead you into life. It's how you were living to learn, and now you're learning to live. There will be a knock at the door asking you to rethink whatever it may be in your life, giving you opportunities to do something for the first time, and it will lead to life. You know, I, I told you about a book I read a number of years ago that I love. If I Get to Five by, Father, by um, Dr. Fred Epstein. He has a story about a young boy named Luis, Luis Erbalan. Luis was six years old, living in Ecuador. He was, had a wonderful mom and dad, several brothers and sisters. They were poor, but they were happy. They were a good family. They had enough to eat. They had a hut, dirt floor. They did not have many things, but they had each other. Life was good. They were very active in their Catholic church. Their faith was important to them. They were in church every Sunday. And then one day, Luis began to complain that their, his fingers were tingling. His toes were tingling. His mother was watching him, and as time went on, it got harder to move those hands, move those toes. 
And then she found that he was having a harder time just getting up and moving at all. She saw her son literally withering away before her eyes. She had taken him to the medicine man. She took him to the tribal herbalist. Nothing helped. And this mother who was so desperate picked up her son and she carried him to church. In the middle of the week when no one was there, she went in and she laid him there in the chancel. And there she knelt and prayed. Oh God, I know how you loved your son. I love my son. Help me. Help me know what to do. Please help me. She prayed to Mother Mary. Mary, one mother to another. I know you loved your son like I love my son. Help me know what to do. Please help me. She picked up her son and walked out of the church. She was walking down the street to go back home when she looked over and saw a building. It wasn't a new building. It had always been there. But she had never seen the building. There was a sign on it that said, World Health Organization. That meant nothing to her. She did not know what they did or what it was about. But there was a voice that spoke to her that said, Go. Go in there. Without knowing what it was about, she went and went inside, and there was Dr. Dan Brickleman. Dan Brickleman got to know her. Her name is Maria and her son, Luis. And as they described what was going on, Dan said, we can take Luis in the back and we can do an MRI. It's actually a test that will tell us what's going on inside him. And they took him back, and sure enough, he had a mass growing on his spine. Well, now, Dan had done his residency in New York City. That's where he had met Fred Epstein, who happened to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. And so he called Fred and said, I have a mother here, Maria, and her son, Luis. They're a wonderful family. He has a growth on his spine, some sort of tumor. I think he'd be just the kind of person you could help. And Fred immediately said, well, we have a fund for just this kind of thing. Put him on a plane, send him to New York, be happy to see him. And now Maria went back to go tell her family and friends, and you know what they all said? Don't go. I mean, to go to the United States? Do you know what those people are like in the United States? Don't go. It'll be dangerous. I mean, to go to some big white magician, bad things can happen. Don't go. You're going to have to fly on an airplane. No one in their village had ever flown on an airplane. Do you know how dangerous it is to fly on an airplane? Don't go. Everybody said, don't go. It's dangerous. But Maria felt that she had been praying and listening and she was being told to go and she was willing to do something for the first time. She took her son and they got on a plane. 
they flew to New York City. Now, can you imagine being six years old, having grown up in a village with a, a house that's a hut with a dirt floor, and you're going to land in New York City? I mean, Luis was scared to death. He was terrified. But so was his mother, Maria. They took him to the hospital where they could meet Fred and his team. They had a doctor who was the translator as well. They wanted to make sure she understood what they were going to do. There would be a number of tests over the next few days. And as they did these tests, well, everybody came to love Maria and Luis. He really was this really neat little boy. He carried his teddy bear with him wherever he went. If he had a teddy bear, it gave him a sense of courage. We can do this. And they all just fell in love with him. Finally, they had all the information they needed. They said, yes, we're going to do surgery. And so they took him to surgery. Whenever he was out, they took his little teddy bear, put it back in his room so it would be there when he woke up. They got him in and they turned him over and they began to open him up. And what they found was the tumor was far bigger than it had shown up in the MRI. This was going to be tedious and long. They set to work for several hours. And suddenly, after several hours in, the anesthesiologist said, we have an irregular heartbeat. And about 60 seconds later, an alarm went off. Blood pressure is falling. And it wasn't long after that, another alarm went off. He's in cardiac arrest. I mean, suddenly, everything broke loose. They began trying to pack towels in his back, try to stabilize as much as they could, get him thrown back over now, bringing in direct shots of epinephrine into the heart, into the IVs, bringing in the paddles, everything they could do, and nothing seemed to work. It was Fred who was doing an external massage on this little six-year-old boy on his heart. And once they had done all the shots and all the drugs and all the electric shocks, Fred just continued on because nobody wanted to say what they knew. Nobody wanted to speak those words. We've lost him. Fred continued on and he said he was praying, Oh God, oh God, we need a little help here. We need a little help. Luis, don't leave me, boy. Don't leave me, Luis. And he just kept on. 29 minutes. 29 minutes. And suddenly the anesthesiologist said, We got a beat. We got a heartbeat. Two minutes later, the blood pressure was stable. And Fred said, sometimes when a miracle falls on you out of heaven, all you can say is, thank you. Thank you. He said, we all took just a little bit to kind of regather ourselves and kind of refocus and take a deep breath. It had been a little exciting there. When they finally all felt back together, they turned him over and they took out the towels and set back to work hours more. Finally, they were through. They closed him up, took him to recovery. Now they had two things to worry about. 
And when I got to recovery, they waited till he started to come out of it. And then the doctor, who was the translator, was there. And Fred said, ask him to wiggle his toes and his fingers. And very groggily, he started to move his fingers and then wiggle his toes. And the place erupted. Everybody's cheering and cheering. And you got a little six-year-old boy thinking, they're really excited that I can move my fingers and toes? So he really began to move his fingers and toes, show them he could do that. And they kept on cheering. No paralysis. No paralysis. But now the big question, 29 minutes, had they been able to get oxygen to the brain? Fred said, ask him his name. Luis? Ask him where is he? New York City. Ask him who I am. Well, you are Dr. Fred, the great white magician. <laughs> and then the doctor said, there's one thing he wants to ask of you, though. Where is his teddy bear? And Fred said, he was fine. Physically, mentally, he was fine. We sewed him up and he began to heal. Days later, when he was stronger, we put he and his mom Maria on a plane and flew them home to Ecuador. They went home to a new life, whole new life. Luis had been blessed by Fred Epstein and an incredible surgical team. He had been blessed by Dr. Dan Bickelman, who saw an opportunity. But most of all, he had been blessed by a mother's prayer. A mother who was willing to pray and to listen and to see an opportunity and make the decision to go and do something for the first time. That is what will lead to life. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. 
Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.